I'm going to look at a text this morning that is very, very familiar. And at the risk of familiarity, I want you to open to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. We're going to look this morning at the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I come to you this morning with a burden for the message of this parable. This is a heavy point that Christ is going to drive home in a context that I think many of us will find surprising. I studied this parable and reading commentaries and hearing sermons about this parable. I really believe that this parable is lost on many levels. For many of us, this is a parable that is lost in childhood. I remember hearing the story of the Good Samaritan time and time again as a child. I remember seeing the, the flannel graph and the images and the story as it played out and the importance of the characters. And remember hearing it, but I was, I was reading through, I've been reading through the Gospel of Luke recently, and I was reading through, this parable jumped out to me in, in a new light. I realized that I hadn't really dwelled upon this parable perhaps even since childhood. I think for many of us that may be true, that this is one of those stories that there's a danger of familiarity, that we know this so well from so early on in our life that we may have lost some of the significance and the meaning of what this parable has. For many of us, it's lost in childhood. I think for many more, this is a parable that is lost in meaning. Historically, this parable has been horribly misunderstood. It has been famously interpreted with a method that is called allegory. Allegory is to assign different meanings to specific characters and specific parts of this story. For example, Augustine famously interpreted the parable of the Good Samaritan in this way. He said that the man who walked down the road was Adam. That Jerusalem from which he was going was Eden. That the robbers were the devil and his angels. That the priest was the Old Testament law, which could not save the man. That the Levite was the ministry of the Old Testament prophets. That the good Samaritan was Christ. It's a compelling statement and an interesting statement. When you examine the story of the good Samaritan at face value, those things aren't present, nor would they have been present in the mind of the original hearer. And to interpret the story of the Good Samaritan in that light is to miss the point. Some have gone so far as to say that the donkey is the body of Christ. And that the inn that the, the, the man who is beaten is taken to is the church. And that the two denarii that he uses to pay for his stay are the two sacraments, baptism and communion. Missing entirely, entirely, though it's interesting, missing the point that Christ is trying to drive home. It's also been lost in meaning in that we need to remember that this is a parable. Much ink has been spilled questioning the motives of many in this story. Why did the priest not stop? Why did the Levite not stop? The reality is that this is a story that Jesus made up. It's not a true story. It's a parable. It's an illustration. And the reason that the priest didn't stop to help the man who was beaten was because Jesus didn't say that the priest stopped. The priest has no inherent thought process. This is a parable. This is a story. And in missing that, it's easy to miss what Christ is driving home. It's a parable that's lost in childhood, a parable that's lost in meaning. But one of the most significant ones, I believe, for us is that it is a parable that is lost in application. 
believe largely that the parable of the Good Samaritan is underapplied. This is often used to illustrate our requirements, our obligation to help the poor, to help the sick, to nurse the sick. And while what we'll see this morning is that that is an implication of what Jesus is saying, that's not his main point. Jesus is not telling this parable so that those listening and us today go and care for the sick. That's not what he's getting at. Now again, we can draw that application from what Jesus says, but that's not his main point. That's not why he's saying what he's saying. We're reading this parable in a different light and being floored by what Jesus is communicating. The parable of the Good Samaritan is Jesus showing an expert in the law how he can go to heaven. Parable of the Good Samaritan. It is Jesus showing an expert in the law how he can have eternal life. Now, if you know the story of the Good Samaritan and you hear that statement, you might be a little bit uneasy. No, I was as well. So what I want to do is just read through the text. We're in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And look what happens in this story. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds and poured oil and wine on them and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii And gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. familiar parable, fascinating parable, and has so much to say for how you and I deal with those around us 
every day. So what I'd like to do this morning, I'm approach this text in a little bit of a different way. There's a lot happening in this passage. There are a lot of details, a lot of nuances, a lot of aspects of this passage that are really buzzwords that would have caused a reaction out of the original hearers, that would have spoken things to the original hearers that, that in our culture and in our context, we don't really have an appreciation for. So what I want to do first this morning is I want to walk through this story verse by verse. And I want to try to understand exactly what is happening here because there's more than what probably initially meets your eye. So I'm going to go through, just run through these verses, talk about what's happening, and then Towards the end, we'll look at some characteristics that I believe are absolutely prevalent for you and I. But we're not going to get there for a little while. So if, if you're used to taking notes and following an outline, we're, we're, we're going to have an outline a little bit later, but it's going to be a little while. So don't hold your breath. We're going to get there in just, just a little while after we run through exactly what's happening in this story. So let's, let's jump off into verse 25. Luke 10, verse 25, when Luke says... And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. There are two main characters in this story. That is the lawyer and Jesus. Now when the lawyer is introduced, understand that a lawyer that is listed here is not the type of lawyer that you and I would understand today. A lawyer fundamentally was an expert in the Mosaic law. This didn't have to do with the laws of society or the cultural laws, but with the Old Testament laws. He would have known, perhaps even a teacher of those Mosaic laws. He knew them well. Would have had many of them memorized. And on top of that, he would have known well the laws that the religious leaders had added on top of the Old Testament laws. Knew the law forwards and backwards. He was an expert in the law, what they would have called a lawyer. And so it's that man that faces off against Jesus in this text. And the lawyer approaches, we see into his motives, seeking to test Jesus. And look at what he says. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He essentially asks, how, how do I be saved? How do I go to heaven? How, how do I inherit eternal life? How do I do that? that that's the question, right? That's, that's the question. He comes and he asks the right question. Burdened. That all of us in this room would be burdened with that question. You have to know the answer to that question and pray that the people that come in contact with you would be burdened with that question. How do I attain eternal life? How do I get there? And hopefully we would have an answer for that question. We, we, we sit through sermons on answering that question. We read books on answering that question. We go to classes on answering that question. And yet it seems that nobody ever asks that question. Not exaggerating when I say nobody has ever come up to me and said, Adam, how do I inherit eternal life? I've never been asked that. But here, somebody asked the question. This, this, is, this is golden material. What is, what is Jesus going to say? Someone comes and they ask the question, how do I inherit eternal life? How do I do it? So you're asking yourself, you're reading through this, what is, what is Jesus going to say? Is he going to lead him in a prayer? 
Is he going to tell him about his coming death and resurrection? That's what I would do. Seems like the best thing to do. It's not what he does. Look at how Jesus responds. Verse 26, and he said to him, what is written in the law? Jesus points him back to the law. And I hear that and my instant thought is like, you're doing it wrong. Like, Why would you point him backwards? There's a better way. In fact, you are the way. You're the way. You're the truth. You're the life. No one comes to the Father but through you. Tell him that. Jesus doesn't do that. Now, Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, knows what he's doing here. This is not a mistake on Jesus' part. He's doing something purposeful. But I I hear that. I hear him say, what does the law say? And instantly, I hesitate. What is going on here? Why does he point him to the law? And the lawyer responds. Jesus asked the question, how does it read to you? Some of your Bibles may say, how do you, how do you quote it? He's pointing them to a well-quoted passage of Scripture. What does the law say about this? And the lawyer knows the answer. The lawyer responds, going to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and he quotes from the Shema. Where he says in verse 27, the law says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And then he quotes from Leviticus. He says, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He summarizes the law. That's how Jesus summarized the law. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the lawyer responds with that. That's, that's what he says. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. You got it right. That is what the law says. But then look, look at what he says next. Do this and you will live. You answered correctly. Now go do that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself and you will live. You will have eternal life. Again, I hear that, and there's, there's something that makes me question what Jesus is doing. Because he's missing something, it seems, isn't he? he? He's missing himself. Can I really earn my way to heaven by loving my neighbor and loving God? Can, can I really do that? But as you're reading through this, that's exactly what it sounds like Jesus is saying. So what, what is going on here? I think we, we, have to, we have to pause. We have to remember something. This is Christ talking. Christ, Christ knows the answer to the question, how do I attain eternal life? He knows the answer. He is the answer. But he knows more than you and I know at this point in the story. He also knows not only the answer to the question, he knows the heart of the asker. He knows 
what's going on in the heart and mind of the lawyer at this point. I believe he points him to the law for several reasons. One of them, he's, he's going to use the lawyer's own material to his own advantage. The lawyer knew the law. This was, this was what he had and valued. And so Christ says, well, you're a lawyer. What does the law say? But on top of that, Jesus knows, as do we, that the Old Testament is equally sufficient to show the need for salvation. The New Testament is no more sufficient than the Old in showing that we need a Savior. It's, it's absolutely there. So he points, this lawyer, he says, go to the law. What does it say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you can do that, eternal life is yours. Let's keep reading. Verse 29, we now see the heart of the lawyer, but wishing to justify himself. He said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now that is a fascinating detail to include. He says, but the lawyer was wishing to justify himself. Think about that statement. The lawyer had an agenda. The lawyer wanted to show, based on the question that he's about to ask, he wanted to show that he had attained salvation. He wanted to show that he was justified. He wanted to show that when he asked the question, he already knew the answer. How do I attain eternal life? Just so you know, I have it. I have attained eternal life. And so he asked this question, seeking to justify himself, seeking to show his salvation. And who is my neighbor? He's probably anticipating that Jesus is going to say something like the Jews or all of Israel or perhaps even your your fellow religious leaders. We don't know exactly what he was anticipating, but he was probably anticipating something like that. And then he was going to show and illustrate how he had done that to the fullness of his ability and that he therefore had attained eternal life. But Jesus doesn't answer his question the way the lawyer anticipates. Jesus tells a story. Would you, would you believe with, with all of our preconceived notions of the Good Samaritan that it's on the, on the tales of this that the Good Samaritan story comes? Of a man trying to show that he has attained eternal life. It is, it's his. And Jesus says, let me tell you a story. And it's at that point that we get to verse 30. And Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. So there's a man. It's not identified what kind of a man he is. I don't think it's relevant to the story. Just a man. He's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. It says he was going down because Jerusalem was about 3,000 feet above sea level. Jericho was about 1,000 feet below. Any trip from Jerusalem to anywhere was down. And so he went down to Jericho. Now, in the mind of the original hearer, when you hear that phrase from Jerusalem to Jericho on a road, danger signs are flashing in your mind. This was a road that had a reputation. It was a road that was identified as being a dangerous place to go. 
Robberies happened regularly on this road. There's even a section of the road between Jerusalem and Jericho that were identified as the way of blood or the descent of blood. It's the reputation that this place had. And so you hear this story and instantly you're thinking, danger. Something bad could potentially happen here. And as the, place, as, the, as the text plays out, we see that something bad does indeed happen. That robbers fall upon him. They do three, three, three things to him are outlined here. Number one, they stripped him. The word means they took everything from him. They left him with nothing. They took his clothes. They took his possessions. If he had a donkey, they took his donkey. They took his money. He, he, was, he was left when all was said and done with, with nothing. They completely stripped him. Not only that, but the text tells us that they beat him. The sword is normally used in the context of weapons being involved. They, they came at this man probably with weapons and beat him. This wasn't like, this wasn't a punch to the face. This was, they, they, they beat him down. He's left immobile, unable to help himself. And the last thing that they do is that they leave him. They, they went away, leaving him half dead. This man is helpless to help himself. He is beaten. He has nothing Completely desperate, desperate for someone, anyone to come and help him. And in verse 31, someone comes. A priest in verse 31 comes, the text says, and by chance a priest was going down that road. The priests were religious leaders. They performed many of the religious duties. He would have known the law very, very well. He, he would have known the laws about helping your neighbor. He would have known the laws about showing mercy. And as you're reading, you may get like this emotion of, here comes a priest. Surely a priest would help. This is his chance. As the text plays out, When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. The priest sees the man lying on the side of the road, and the word is like the, the opposite side. He gets as far away from him as he can. He avoids the man at all costs. Now, what we learn and what was in the mind of Jewish people at that time is that this may not necessarily have been uncharacteristic of a way that a priest would have acted. You see, the Jews had redefined what it means to be a neighbor. Literature from that time tells us that the Jews had essentially identified their neighbors as fellow Jews and that was it. That if someone were not a Jew, they were not their neighbor. It led to some literature saying that Jews became identified as haters of humanity. These who were supposed to be Loving their neighbor as themselves had become identified as haters of humanity. Some literature that came later on, but I think shows the attitude and the mentality of the Jews said this. If you see a Gentile falling into the sea, he must not be rescued. It is written, you shall not act against the life of your neighbor, but this man is not your neighbor. That was, that was the mentality. I will love my neighbor as myself, but I will redefine who my neighbor actually is. You see, that is what is actually at the heart of the question of the lawyer, and who is my neighbor? 
been redefined. And so it would not have been uncharacteristic for the, Levi, for the, for the priest to pass by, but the text plays out. He, he does do that. He passes by him. He passes on the opposite side. But the story doesn't stop. In verse 32, likewise, a Levite also, another, another chance, a Levite comes. And this is another religious leader. This is, would have been more of like an assistant to the priest. Again, would have done many of the religious duties, would have known the law well. But the text plays out the exact same way. He sees him and he passes by on the other side. So these two religious leaders... They've passed him up. They didn't help. They moved on. They went on with their business. And this man is still left, beaten, naked, helpless, and waiting for someone. And it's at that point that the story changes in verse 33 when Jesus says, but a Samaritan. I need to pause again. Because that word Samaritan is significant. That word Samaritan had cultural significance that we may not feel today. I don't know about you, but when I hear the word Samaritan, I have positive connotations. Instantly, my mind goes to the good Samaritan, the guy that helped. The Samaritan woman who Jesus spoke to, who her and much of her town became saved. I have positive connotations in my mind with Samaritans, not so with the Jews. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. Jews and Samaritans did not speak. They did not interact. They avoided each other at all cost. You see that in several different places of scripture. But what happened is in the Assyrian captivity, Jews and Gentiles intermarried. And the Samaritans are what came of that. And so the Jews saw the Samaritans as essentially what they would call like a half-breed. Not worthy. They, they, they saw them. They didn't talk. They didn't interact. They saw them as like the, the scum of the earth in the mind of the Jew. These are the worst of the worst. And so when that word Samaritan leaves Jesus' lips, understand that the blood starts to boil. Understand that he chose this person specifically and purposefully and it's making others uneasy. Jesus says a Samaritan comes. Verse 33 He was on a journey and he came upon him and when he saw him, he felt compassion. The Samaritan felt compassion. This is the defining difference between the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan. The fundamental difference between them is that the Samaritan felt something that the priest and the Levite didn't feel. He felt compassion. He saw a need. He perceived it as a need and he felt sorry. He felt caring. He felt sympathetic for this man. It was that compassion that then would compel him to do the rest of what is outlined in this text. And what we see is that the Samaritan, because of his compassion, just starts caring for this man. Look at verses 34 and 35. He came to him and bandaged up his wounds, poured oil and wine on them, and he put them on his he put him on his own beast, brought him to an inn, took care of him. On the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. This is unbelievable. The Samaritan spares no expense. He foots the entirety of this man's bill. And then the story ends. And Jesus asks a question. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor 
to the man who fell into the robber's hands. Now remember that this entire parable is a response to a question. This entire thing came from the lawyer asking Jesus, who is my neighbor? And now Jesus tells this story and he fires a question back. But note that the question has changed. It's not the same question. Jesus isn't answering who is my neighbor. The original question, who is my neighbor, Jesus changes to what is a neighbor? What is a neighbor? What does it mean to be a neighbor? In firing this question back at him, Jesus fundamentally says, you're asking the wrong question. You're missing the whole point. If you're going about this, trying to figure out who you have to be kind to, who you have to be loving to and merciful and caring for and who you don't have to, you're missing it. The question is not, who is your neighbor? The question is, what does it look like to be a neighbor? What fundamentally is a neighbor? And Jesus answers that in the parable of the Good Samaritan. He says the Good Samaritan was a neighbor. The Good Samaritan is the picture of what you should be. You're asking the wrong question, and in doing so, you've missed the entire, the entire point. And the lawyer realizes it. In verse 37, he answers the question. He says, the one who showed mercy toward him. Note he does not give the easy or simpler answer of the word Samaritan. Again, he avoids even saying the name. He says it was the merciful one, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus says, go. Go and do the same. You've answered correctly. The Samaritan was the neighbor. I know you think that you have kept the law, love your neighbor as yourself. What I just showed you, what I just showed you says that you don't. You have to imagine, we don't see the rest of the story, that the lawyer probably walks away grieving. It's a, it's a very similar story to the story of the rich young ruler and realizing I, I can't do that. Significant statements by Christ. He shows what it means to be a neighbor. What it looks like to truly fulfill that command of loving your neighbor as yourself. What I'd like to do with the rest of our time this morning is see that parable. I want to look at five characteristics of genuine love. I want to take that example of genuine love, genuine love for your neighbor. I want to look at what characterized the Samaritan and equally what should characterize us in genuine love for our neighbor. Now, again, we touched on this in the beginning, but don't miss the point here. It's easy to hear this and be like, okay, so that applies to when you're driving down the street and you see the man without a home that needs money and is asking for some change. That's, that, that may be an implication of this. In fact, maybe even that should be an implication of this, but that's not the main point. The point is love your neighbor as yourself. This, this has millions of applications. Love your neighbor. This is a way of life. This is a characteristics that define all of our life. We love our neighbors as we love ourselves. So with that in mind, let's look at what characterized the Samaritan's love, the Samaritan's mercy. Five characteristics of genuine love. Number one, 
Genuine love is undeterred by circumstances. Genuine love is undeterred by circumstances. Note in verse 33, we briefly passed over this, but in verse 33, as the Samaritan is introduced, Jesus says, but a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. Every line in a parable is a detail that Jesus chose to include. It's an interesting detail to include that the Samaritan was on a journey. Because so much of the love that we show for all men is circumstantially driven. But you look at the example of the good Samaritan and his circumstances did not dictate whether or not he showed love, mercy, kindness, compassion to someone. This man was on a journey. He had a mission. He had somewhere to go. He had somewhere to be. Probably what's in mind here is like he was on a, a business trip of sorts. He was, had a goal in mind. There were somewhere he needed to be. He was on a journey. But the fact that he was on a journey did not stop him from showing compassion. The fact that he had a mission, the fact that there may have been people waiting for him didn't stop him. He cared despite the fact that it was inconvenient for his circumstances. But I find in my own heart and so easy to use our circumstances and as an excuse to not show love. It's so easy to say, look, I, I, I would do something here, but I have somewhere to be. I'm not saying that we should avoid every sense of responsibility or obligation that we may have, but ask yourself, ask in your heart, do you allow your circumstances as an out is an excuse for not showing love, mercy, compassion to the world. Jesus says genuine love. Genuine love is undeterred by your circumstances. Number two, genuine love is driven by compassion. Genuine love is driven by compassion. It's the defining characteristic of the Samaritan in verse 33 was that he felt compassion. Compassion is fundamentally an emotion it's to feel something, sympathy, sadness, sorrow, care, love. But to find the Samaritan and what I believe Christ is calling the lawyer, the listeners, us, what I believe is being called here is that you are to be defined by your compassion. You're driven to act in a loving way towards your neighbor because you feel compassion for them. Sometimes that's so hard. I understand that we are called to love our neighbor. Jesus' implication, there is no boundary on who our neighbor is. We are called to love all men with compassion, like Christ did. It's not easy. There are people that are difficult to love. There are people that we are not naturally compassionate about. But think, think about those people in your mind that you see as, as the lowest of the lows, the ones that are hardest to love. Whatever that is, Christ calls us to be compassionate towards them. The Samaritan, if the Samaritan who the Jews hated thought nothing good could come, if the Samaritan could show compassion to this man, so can we. We'd be driven in our genuine love by compassion. But number three, genuine love is marked by sacrifice. Genuine love is marked by sacrifice. Look to verse 34 and 35 and you see this story of everything that the Samaritan does for this man. 
It's unbelievable. Remember, the man has nothing, nothing. And so if his wounds are being bandaged, this man is bandaging his wounds with something that he has, presumably his own clothes. He's using his own wine and his own oil to care for his wounds. He puts them on his own donkey. The Samaritan walks the rest of the way. He gets to the inn and he says, here's about two days of pay and two denarii. Here's about two days of pay to pay for a stay and I'm coming back. And when I come back, whatever expenses you have, I'm gonna cover him. This costs the Samaritan. It cost him significantly. But genuine love was shown in the fact that it was marked by sacrifice. Genuine love is marked by sacrifice. Number four, it's carried out with completion. Genuine love is carried out with completion. You see this in the last line of verse 35. Samaritan says, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Note something there. The Samaritan is coming back. Isn't that interesting? Samaritan had the ability, apparently, to foot the bill for his cost, but he doesn't do that. He says, here's two denarii, and I'm coming back. I'm not writing a blank check and leaving. And I'm, I'm, checking, I'm following up with this man. I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'm, I'm going to pay whatever it is that needs to be paid for this man to be cared for. See to it that no expense is spared in caring for this man. I'll cover it when I return. It was carried out to completion. Our genuine love for our neighbor is to be carried out to completion. Finish the work. Carry it out completely. Number five. Genuine love is initiated by God. Genuine love is initiated by God. And if you look to the screen, you'll see that there is no verse marker by that statement. It's not found explicitly in every verse, but I think it permeates this entire story. That genuine love from us to our neighbors can only be initiated by God. God awakens this kind of mercy in us. God awakens this mercy in us. This is not natural. This is only awakened by God. The standard of mercy that that we just looked at is so high. Who, who can attain to that standard? Who, who can go and love their neighbors as much as they love themselves? Who can do that? It's so unnatural. In fact, the reality is if you're looking at that list, there probably is one person that you can say, I can check off all of those things that I do regularly towards one person. And it's you. Hence the command though, right? Hence the command, love your neighbor how much? As yourself. That's how much you love your neighbor. You love them, you show your love, your love is genuine as you would do for yourself. Who can do that? It's only awakened in us by God. I think that's exactly what's happening in this text. This lawyer comes to Jesus and he has been trying to carry out these lists and regulations. He's been trying to do it by himself. He's been trying to do this and so He literally thinks, I'm good. I've done what I need to do. And Jesus says, no, you can't can't do this. 
can't love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. I'm going to show you how you hate your neighbor. Only God can awaken this kind of mercy in us. Fundamentally, what we see here is that to love your neighbor requires a changed heart. It, It demands a changed heart. A lawyer, the lawyer, did not have a changed heart. That's the point of Jesus' story. The lawyer comes saying, I have attained eternal life. I have fulfilled this commandment. Jesus tells the story that says, you have not fulfilled this commandment. Implication, you are not justified. The lawyer's trying to justify himself and Jesus is showing him why he isn't justified because he hasn't fulfilled this command. In other words, God isn't in him. Because only God can awaken this kind of mercy in someone. It's the only way God awakens this mercy in us. But also, note that God shows this mercy to us. God shows this mercy to us. Believe that we are called to show this kind of mercy. Because we have been shown this kind of mercy. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. When we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. It is in the richness of God's mercy that we can show mercy to others. Indeed, you, you are not called to act in a way towards others that God didn't act towards you. You, you, you look at this list, and this is, this is significant. Every, every one of these, every one of these points that, that, that we've looked at this evening, undeterred by this morning, undeterred by circumstances. Christ was not deterred by any circumstance, not even death, to show mercy. There was no circumstance that got in his way. Driven by compassion, Christ looked. To the crowds, he looked to everyone and he felt compassion for them. Why? Because they were sheep without a shepherd. He felt sorrow for them. So we're called, we're even compelled to act in the same way. His his genuine love had no limitations. It's marked by sacrifice. Greater love has no man than this. His love was marked by sacrifice. And so we are called to love genuinely with sacrifice as Christ did. His love compels us to love. His love enables us to love. It is carried out with completion. What is more complete than our salvation? Jesus didn't go halfway. He carried it out with completion. Because of the mercy that he showed us and believed that we are called to show mercy to others. So God awakens this mercy in us. God shows this mercy to us. But also God demands this mercy from us. God demands this kind of mercy from us. It's a a sacrifice. It's gonna cost you something. He demands that we are merciful. This is significant. Again, the man is seeking to justify himself. He's saying, I have loved my neighbor. And Jesus says, really, let's talk about what it means to love your neighbor. Jesus implies that 
he isn't justified. And he proves it by saying that he is not merciful. God demands this mercy from us. Again, it will cost. I'm gonna tell you that it will cost you so much more to not show mercy. James 2.13, judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. But the antithesis is incredible. Matthew chapter five, verse seven. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Pray with me. Merciful God, we are undeserving of any grace, of any mercy, of any love, of any compassion. And yet you bestowed it freely upon us. God, I pray that we would do likewise. That we would be loving and caring and merciful, compassionate to our neighbor. That we would place no restrictions on who our neighbor is. That we would glorify you and how we treat those around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.